those who aren't yet Christians may think it's obvious, but from this side of faith, Christians often feel completely bemused. Why doesn't everyone just become a Christian? I do remember um, uh, a small and rather dying, very conservative church um, that um, uh, was struggling on when uh, there was a much more lively church at the other end of town and a visiting preacher, who was the man who told me this story, was, uh, was visiting this little dying church and, and um, he said to them, have you ever thought why it is that uh, not many people come to your church no one gets converted in your church? Um, the answer from the venerable deacon came, well, I suppose not many of the elect live round here. (laughs) Well, perhaps people don't become Christians because God doesn't call them. That's part of the answer, perhaps. Other people would say, well, it's because Christianity is not intellectually credible. Um, Others would say, well, it's just too restrictive, isn't it? There may be... uh, Uh, A thousand reasons. I want to point you, though, to one particular reason why people don't become Christians. It's just not attractive enough. Uh, Some people do become Christians, it seems, despite feeling not very attractive to Christianity. C.S. Lewis professed that. he said uh, when, that he was the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England when he got converted and uh, only later was he, as he put it, surprised by joy. But actually, I think in a, in a fundamental sense, we go where our hearts lead us. And people don't become Christians Because their hearts are not led in that direction. Their hearts are not led to God. We might might produce the most brilliant arguments as to why people will uh, become Christians and uh, present them to those people in the most wonderful way. And yet, if their hearts are not captivated by God and by Christ, they will not turn. Hence it is that uh, Richard Dawkins so obviously and transparently not only wants to argue intellectually against Christianity, but he wants to make Christianity look ugly and nasty. He overplays his cards, most people would suggest, but uh, his strategy is wise. It's the ugliness of Christianity very often that turns people away, not just the arguments. And it's my belief that that is a major, major reason why the church in this country is not bigger than it is. Because there is a popular view that Christianity is a nasty, ugly, 
restrictive faith that once held British people captive in its grasp and now they have broken free into the light and why would they ever go back to anything else? Victorian England and the Christians especially of of Victorian England are often described in a way that actually responsible historians say is a complete caricature. There's a major part of the message, the 20th century message about Christianity. You didn't want to go back to 19th century Victorian values. Despite the fact that the Christians were responsible for overwhelming the majority of social reforms in the 19th century, Christians were, were, um, uh, were, were the ones who, who uh, were campaigning against uh, the slave trade at the beginning of the century or campaigning against child labour in the middle of the, uh, of the century or uh, campaigning against the vicious prostitution that was happening uh, in the later parts of the, uh, of, of the 19th century. In the 1960s, that, the... the uh, that that burst of of rebellion and all its light and colour and freedom and exhilaration was attractive to people because it seemed to be throwing off the dark clothes of a former era and putting on the clothes of flower power and, and free love and all of those sorts of things. But 40, 50 years later. Actually, that attraction doesn't seem nearly so strong these days. Things are changing. I see, actually, the mood of our nation beginning to change. As people realise, actually, the true ugliness lie in a form of sexual liberation that was only interested in me and left victims in its wake. Attitudes to money and uh, power that were deeply damaging. There's a fascinating article just after Christmas in the the Times. Matthew uh, Paris, who is no friend of Christianity, wrote... As an atheist, this was the title of his article, as an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. It was about Africa, but uh, listen to some of the uh, things that he says. In Africa, he says, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. He describes his childhood in Malawi. Years ago, this Christmas visit back to Africa was after many years away. But he remembers, when he was a child, the Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealings with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall, he says. That's his thesis, that's his observation. No wonder the church has been thriving so much in Africa. 
when all over that continent there were people who stood tall and were different as believers. He concludes, removing Christian evangelism from the African equation may leave the continent at the mercy of a malign fusion of Nike, the witch doctor, the mobile phone and the machete. Now I want to say to Matthew Paris, is that for Africa only? What about Britain? You see, the Matthew Parises of the world, of this world will see the beauty of Christianity and of Christ when they see transformed people. There's enough honesty about both of them as there is in Matthew, uh, Matthew Paris for them to recognise that. He freely confesses. He says, I find myself in... In, uh, in an untenable situation. But though I have come not to believe in God, I see the fruit that it produces and I like it. Indeed, he says, I can't even say as a secularist, let them do the good things and leave their faith behind. Because he says, I see that their faith is intrinsic to the good that they do. What an amazing testimony to African Christians. Wouldn't that be a great testimony? A great thing for someone to say about us. You see, our vision as a local church is very much to be like those African Christians that Matthew Paris describes. And to be honest, if we are to change the hearts and minds of our nation, it'll need us and more than us, hundreds of thousands of Christians who are prepared to stand tall and to walk tall and to devote their lives to Christ allowing our relationship with him to really transform the way that we live. But I see really positive signs in this country as people sometimes grudgingly, sometimes fulsomely come to respect Christianity again. It's exactly God's intention for his world described all over the place in the Bible but I want just briefly to look at Isaiah chapter 2 the vision that Isaiah is given is that people come people come to God because God has become attractive to them In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, says Isaiah in, uh, in verse 2. This image then is of raising, raising the hill, Zion, where the temple was, above all the other hills. Um, the hills traditionally were, tended to be the place, uh, place where the gods of that whatever nation dwelt. 
And uh, the God of Israel, in one sense, dwells on the hill Mount Zion, because that's where the temple is. And God is determined that he is going to display his glory to be greater than the glory of all other gods. And he's going to do it by raising up his people above all other peoples. Jesus used a very similar image in Matthew 5 when he was talking to the disciples. He says, you're you're a city. They said, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Matthew 5 verse 14. What Isaiah saw as being um, focused around one particular physical hill in Israel, the New Testament sees as being the characteristic of the people of God wherever they gather. You are a city on a hill. And God is not going to let you be hidden. He's going to raise up that city to display his glory. And the attractiveness of that city will be uh, miraculous almost. The nations, he says, will stream to it in verse 2. Um, that, that is the word for, for a river flowing. Rivers flow downhill, not up. But this river of people will flow against the law of gravity to this raised up hill. God is going to do a miracle. God is going to draw people in to this city on a hill. In, a, in an irresistible way, just as water can't help flowing downhill, these people won't be able to help flowing up the hill to the city. They will want to know God. Verse 3. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. They will want to know the character of God, the ways of God. They will want to obey God. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And most especially those people, when they are gathered into that city, they will be united. He will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. They will abandon the means of war. They will beat their swords into plowshares. They will abandon the practice of war. They will not take up sword. And they will abandon even the mentality of war. They will not train for war any longer. These are a people who will be devoted to peace, to unity, to love. And from that people, the word of God will go out. You see that in verse 3. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It's very like the book of Acts, 
where if you read through the book of Acts, as the church spreads out um, and uh, to the whole of the Roman Empire, again and again Luke stops and says, the word of the Lord prospered, or the word of the Lord spread, as if the word of God itself had a life and a power. It spreads out around the world. What Isaiah predicted has been happening now for 2,000 years and is happening here. Isaiah's conclusion is a call to Israel. Since God intends to be like that, how should we respond? Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. I I, I want to say to you this morning that that is happening here. I see that happening here in all sorts of uh, uh, ways amongst us. I actually think you're stunning. I really do. I really do. As you welcome people in. As people, people, people come in um, just to have a look. They always tell me they feel really welcomed. As, um, um, as they're, they're served as they come into the building that we have on Modlin Road. They feel cared for. I actually am amazed and astonished again and again by what I see going on amongst us. But I'm not surprised because we have a stunning God. We have a God who changes people in that way who sets them free, who enables them to walk tall, who makes them people uh, uh, of, uh, of integrity, who makes us people of love, who are able to forgive. That is what knowing him does in hearts and that is what he is doing in hearts here. And I want you to rejoice in that and celebrate that and recognise God is doing something really great amongst us. What Isaiah foresaw is happening here. But I want to spend um, a little bit more time, actually uh, just, just for a couple of minutes, thinking about the practical aspects of that. Because Martin's already mentioned the uh, money we need to refurbish the building. I want to explain to you a little bit as to how that fits into our vision. We use three very important words in several places in uh, uh, our vision statements to try to explain 
the church that God has called us to be. Or three concepts, because we use slightly different words in different um, situations. But the concepts are word, service and community. In our church we want to be statement. That's why I wanted to put the slides up. We, are, we have said, by grace, through faith, we are prayerfully committed to becoming a community of people who, amongst other things, and there are four major priorities, reach out to, the, to all the peoples of East Oxford and the world with the glorious gospel of Christ. And then there's an explanation. The explanation you can read for yourself. I hope it's um, uh, uh, true and helpful to you. But I've just highlighted three words in uh, that explanation. We aim to serve, love and speak in the name of Christ so that through us people may trust Christ and find the joy of salvation. Why do we use those three words, word, service, community, serve, love and speak as part of our aim together. I want to uh, try to uh, help you to understand that and to see that and see why it's so vital. The first word that we used in that statement is to serve. We aim to serve love and speak in the name of Christ. You see, this miraculous drawing of people in Isaiah chapter 2 doesn't happen in a vacuum at all. Back in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, the Israelites had explained to them carefully how it was going to happen, how the nations were going to be drawn inexorably to um, uh, God. He says um, there, observe these laws carefully. This will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding nation. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us? And so on. In other words, it is through faithful obedience that Israel was expected to draw those nations. They failed, in fact. But God, when he formed his church, was determined that his church wouldn't fail. He sent his Holy Spirit to enable us to fulfil his righteous requirements. You, if you are a Christian here this morning, have begun a process of transformation by the Spirit in which you can serve God faithfully. And that will happen in all sorts of ways, in your work, amongst your family, amongst your friends, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. But it can also happen 
as we as a church serve the community together. And uh, we have been using the last few years the building as a vital part of that humble service. We've been running youth clubs. We've been, um, we've been allowing some outside user groups to, to, to use it. If, they, if, they, if it's a good thing um, that they want to do, then we're delighted to, to, to support them. We are committed to that building being useful as a tool to serve the world around. And make no mistake, people see that. People observe that. People constantly tell me from the community, your church is different. Oh, thank you so much that I could use the building for my child's birthday party. Or thank you so much that Sunflower's mother and toddler group happens. Or whatever. They really do see it. The second uh, concept after uh, service is um, the idea of love. The formation of a new community. Did you notice how this community that has people streaming to it was a community of peace and reconciliation? No swords, only plowshares. No taking up swords. No training for war. The way that Jesus puts it is this. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. The attractiveness of the people of God, the way that the people of God point to God himself is again and again through the quality of our relationships with one another. And again, that often will be practiced in, in informally in all sorts of personal relationships that you have around the place. But the building becomes an enormously useful tool in that. We are committed to being... You could call it a porous community, an open community. In one sense, a community without walls, despite the fact that we uh, uh, have a building. Uh, A community that warmly welcomes others in. Something I started to realise a long, long time ago was that Christians were very, well, reasonably good at loving one another. But the world didn't see that. The world is cut off from those loving relationships. It's as the world is invited in and sees, see how these love one another, that they are astonished. We run a real life film club, partly for that purpose. We enjoy it as a church, lots of people from the church come and lots of people who, who don't yet belong to the church, come along and just hear Christians openly talking about issues in life. Some of you will remember one 
one person in particular who was, uh, who was searching and had rather been turned off church and was, um, felt the church was stuffy. Her first step towards faith was coming along to a real life film, film club and just seeing ordinary people but people with something about them. WNT and FNT is a way that we love teenagers, those two uh, uh, youth groups. And it bears fruit. Four baptisms so far, other people studying the Bible, considering uh, um, being baptised. Do not underestimate the value of the building in just becoming a focus for our community life that overflows to the wider community. God uses it. And uh, in the context that we've been looking at, we purposely put speak last in reaching out. It's my... uh, Uh, my conviction that people need to see that there is something about Christians that is different before they're really ready to hear the message. But the message must come. The message must come clearly. One of our key verses in trying to understand that is uh, from Romans 10 that I've put there and very much an element of our life together is that we want people to get beyond just meeting us and sensing God through our changed lives. We want people to start to hear the good news of the gospel. We want them to get into looking at the Bible for themselves. We want them to interact and ask questions and respond. Some things are best done like we're doing it now with one person speaking, many, many um, um, things are better as interactions. And we have small groups, some that meet in homes, but often we have used the building again in order to uh, move people from enjoying the fact that we serve them, seeing the love that God has given amongst us to hearing the gospel message. The three fit intimately together. And indeed, if anyone was missing, people would not come. People would not be saved. It is a combination of the truth spoken in the midst of lives changed that turns people from feeling that Christianity is unattractive to sensing it's the most beautiful thing that they've ever come across. Because Jesus is the most beautiful person they could ever meet. Let me give you one example to finish. Some years ago we started the Comfort Trust explicitly aimed at simply caring for people's practical needs, but run by Christians who wanted to serve in the name of Jesus. This Christmas, 
by popular demand, in fact, from outside, we held a uh, children's carols by candlelight. People who'd been coming along to the mothers and toddlers, the parents and toddlers groups, came along to that uh, children's carols by candlelight and heard Nick who led us explain something about her Christian faith. They were really struck by that. Connections were being made. People have come along here afterwards. As a result, the link is made that God wants to make. And that building is a great resource to do that. So, we want you to consider seriously um, giving some money, however much, to make sure that that building continues to be a good resource for God's work. There may be other ways you can serve. You can volunteer practically. If you can't, uh, if you can't do that, you can pray. You can be part of one of those ways in which the, ch- the, ch- the church serves and loves and speaks. But make no mistake about it. If God is amongst us, and I believe he is, he will make his city on a hill rise up cannot be hidden and he will see people converted people come to what they're attracted to and thank God he has made you people who make God look as perhaps not as great as he is but somewhere towards his greatness.